Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 305th episode of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We are broadcasting right across the world this week from our studio in Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, California, where it's another perfect day. It's about 90 degrees, absolutely clear as a bell out there. It is beautiful. And this is where technology meets entertainment. Do you have a favorite restaurant? I think we all have our favorite restaurants tucked away somewhere. How many of you are aware of Club 33? Club 33 is a secret five-star restaurant that has regular the regular public can't go to. They've got no access whatsoever. There are only two ways to get into Club 33. One, become a member, or two, be invited by one. Membership costs up to $100,000 a year with up to $30,000 in additional annual fees. That's one hundred and thirty grand a year to belong to a restaurant, and when you go, you've got to pay for your food. <laughs> what a good lurk that is. As of a couple of years ago, there was a 14-year waiting list for memberships. So just think about that for a minute, one hundred and thirty grand a year, and a 14-year waiting list. Now, wow, where would you expect this restaurant to be? Would you expect it midtown Manhattan or Paris? Maybe Rome? No, you'd be wrong. Club 33 is the secret club hidden in plain sight in Disneyland in the middle of New Orleans Square located across from La Mascarade, Dorleans, and this is where you'll find the inconspicuous interest to one of the most whispered about spots across the globe, Club 33. The club was the brainchild of Walt Disney, who, after the 1964 World's Fair, envisaged a secret apartment where he could entertain corporate sponsors and special guests because Walt had an apartment above the Pirates of Caribbean ride. So, and then his wife, Lillian Disney, designed the interior of Club 33. In 2014, it underwent extensive renovations and expansions and apparently now looks completely different than it used to, but still looks pretty flash. For 130000 a year, you'd expect it to. So you think about that, you pay $2,500 a week for the right to go and then you pay for the food. <laughs> Woo. So what does um, Club 33 look like now? Well, I don't know. And I guess most of us are never going to find out. Now, this week's the 12-month anniversary of my... Um, very popular 30-second read business newsletter that goes out to an amazing 1.7 million business executives every day. I'm not sure what was today's was about. What was the topic of today's? What was the topic of today's newsletter? 
we're um, trying to find out. So thanks to everybody who listens to this program and reads the newsletter, and thanks for all your feedback, even those who tell me I'm an idiot and don't know what I'm talking about, but they keep reading and listening and sending me notes, so I'm happy about that. Now, we all know that yesterday Amazon completed its purchase of Whole Foods to usher in what will be a revolution in the supermarket industry. Now, how many of you knew that a college dropout built Whole Foods into a $13.7 billion company? Now, Amazon paying $13.7 billion for Whole Foods may be a savvy business decision for both parties, but the founding ethos of the companies are diametrically different. Amazon's a result of Jeff Bezos' obsession with the efficiency and scalability of the internet. And Whole Foods is the result of an idealistic attempt to make people healthier, promoting sustainable, fairly harvested foods and ethically sourced meats. Now, Whole Foods started as a vegetarian co-op in Austin, in Texas, John Mackey grew up eating cocoa puffs for breakfast. He always had a hamburger for lunch and boxed macaroni and cheese for dinner. Sounds lovely. At 23, he moved into a vegetarian co-op and Mackey, who was a college dropout, became the buyer for the group. He was fascinated with the potential of healthy eating. So, with his new inspired love of healthy and organic food, Mackie and his then-girlfriend, Renee Lawson-Hardy, decided to open a natural grocery store. They raised $45,000, and in 1978, they opened a shop in an old house in Austin where they put a cafe on the second floor, and the couple lived on the third floor. This shop was called Safer Way, and it primarily served the Austin hippie community. Two years later, Mackie and Hardy approached another local natural grocery store, Clarksville Natural Grocery, about joining forces. They went into business together to open the first Whole Foods market in 1980. And in an effort to expand their clientele, they started selling meat, beer, and wine. Whole Foods Market was an instant success. They had no advertising, but the word of mouth was incredible. The Austin counterculture hippie community really supported them. When Mackie looked to rent the space that would become the first Whole Foods Market, the landlord mentioned to him that it was in a 100-year flood zone, and that means that every 100 years, you get a big flood. Well, Mackie decided he'd take the risk, and he lost. In 1981, when he moved into the new Whole Foods market, the 100-year flood happened. The store was drowned underwater, 
sewage was forced out of the pipes, the inventory was ruined, and then looters trashed the store. They didn't have any flood insurance, and they didn't have any money. So they didn't know what they were going to do, but then the Austin community stepped up. Customers helped clean the place up, investors put in money, banks extended credit, and employees worked for free to get the store reopened. When the store reopened, Mackey wanted to open a second store. In 1988, when he approached venture capitalists to expand, he was constantly rejected. One investor said to him, you're just a bunch of hippies and you're just selling food to other hippies and that's not a very good market. A decade later, the VC said that not investing in Whole Foods was the worst decision he'd ever made in his life. Now, Whole Foods sold 34% of the business to venture capitalists for $2.8 million in 1992. They went public and raised $28 million, valuing the company at $100 million. Whole Foods then went out and scooped up a slew of other natural food markets around the country as a fast way to grow. In 2016, there were more than 460 Whole Foods stores in the United States. The company did $16 billion in sales and had 87,000 employees. Now, Mackey still lives in Austin and regularly drives past the location of the first store, which now happens to be a school. And Mackie says that it's important to have a good founder and entrepreneur, but great businesses continue to live on after the founder moves. And that's what's happening now with Jeff Bezos moving in. So let's certainly hope that Whole Foods follows this pattern and stays the great store that it has been. I just found out that today's newsletter is about a hotel that is run almost entirely by robots and it's expanding to 100 stores worldwide. So we've talked about um, robots in Amazon, Amazon Go. I mean, Amazon's got 30,000 robots. Amazon Go's got, I don't know, truckloads of them. We just, and we've talked about all sorts of other places that now a lot of financial institutions, particularly insurance companies, are using AI and robots rather than people. And now we've got another one, hotels without people. Now, the most exciting, far-reaching and awe-inspiring technology advances in recent times have been in healthcare, the financial area, and artificial intelligence, which is driving most of this dramatic change. AI is impacting nearly every industry imaginable. Intelligence and consciousness are prerogatives of the living, and the inevitability of their existence in machines is hard for most of us to understand. Now, we all need to understand that AI will dramatically alter both medicine and finance. And while the industries are indispensable to our economies, 
and to our lives, the people that work in them, in medicine and finance, however, are totally replaceable with AI-guided robots performing everything from routine medical functions to major operations. And blockchain absolutely is decimating the finance, insurance, banking, share trading and industries of that nature. So let's begin with the automated diagnosis and treatment of illnesses. IBM's artificial intelligence machine, Watson, is now as good as a professional radiologist when it comes to diagnosis. And it's also been compiling compiling 30 billion medical images to aid in specialised treatment for image-heavy fields like pathology and dermatology. 30 billion images. Wow. And it can access them instantly. Now, cardiology is also being overhauled with the advent of artificial intelligence. It used to take doctors nearly an hour to quantify the amount of blood transported with each heart contraction. Now, it's 15 seconds. So, instead of an hour, cardiologists can determine how much blood is transported with each heart contraction in just 15 seconds. So with these computers in major hospitals and clinics, doctors can process almost 260 million images a day in their respective fields. And this means that finding skin cancers, blood clots and infections, all with unprecedented speed and accuracy, not to mention the billions and billions and billions of dollars that are saved in research and maintenance. So let's talk finance for a minute. Currently, aside from blockchain, which is the major disruptor, there are almost 15,000 startups that are working to actively disrupt finance. They're creating computer-generated trading and investment models that absolutely blow those crafted by their human counterparts out of the water. Many major hedge funds are already cutting staff. The very 100, the top 100 expensive senior executives in the, wear the even more expensive suits who can't talk business except in elite restaurants are just five minutes away from being replaced by one scruffy personality deprived techie whose normal lunch is coffee and a bag of chips. The result is billions and billions of dollars made with fewer people, greater certainty and much more comfortable work attire. So good to get rid of all those suits off the streets, a good thing. (laughs) So where do we go from here? At least 40% of US jobs can be swallowed almost immediately by artificial intelligence machines. And if we aren't careful about the degree to which we automate these machines, we're looking at an incredibly serious domestic threat. So get excited about what AI can do for us. It can do enormous things. 
can change our lives totally, make us healthier, make everything faster, make everything more transparent. But think very deeply about how it can integrate with us. Otherwise, we could have major issues. My guest today is Kenny Aronoff. He's a good mate, and he's played on over 60 Grammy-nominated nominated recordings, On played on over 300 million records sold, and on 1,300 gold, platinum, and diamond certified records. It's amazing, isn't it? He began playing with John Cougar Mellencamp, and has followed up with Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, Rolling Stones, Gaga, Bruno Mars, Sting, Bob Dylan, Bruce Stingsteen, Johnny Cash, Elton John. You get the message. The boy's good. The boy's real good. And I'll be back in a minute or so with my guest today, Kenny Aronoff. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show, where for the last five years or so, we've given you insights into the lives of somewhere around 330 of the world's most interesting business people. And we talked about what they do what challenges they faced, and we try to work out what it is that makes them tick. You know, doesn't matter what you do, it's really difficult to really make your mark in the world and be successful. And the aim of this segment is to introduce you to people that are involved in interesting and different roles and to learn their keys to success. Now, the reason I wanted to talk to today's guest is because he's a great guy, he is really funny, And he's a fellow member of Metal that I've mentioned on this program a number of times. His name is Kenny Aronoff, and he's played on over 60 Grammy-nominated recordings and on over 300 million records that have been sold and 1,300 gold, platinum and diamond certified records. That is not a bad feat, right? He began playing with John Cougar Mellencamp and he's followed that up with a few also friends like Sir Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, Rolling Stones, Gaga, 
Mars, Sting, Dylan, Springsteen, Bon Jovi, Johnny Cash, Mashing Pumpkins, Rod Stewart, John Fogarty. You get the picture. He's pretty talented, right? Okay. What can he learn in the process of making his dreams a reality? There's now a message and achievement and inspiration that he brings to audiences around the world as a speaker. Now, what the world needs is more fucking speakers, right? Because every, every speaker that's out there takes one job away from me. However, he wants you to become a rock star in your life and in your business. He's just released a book called Sex, Drums and Rock and Roll, which begins when he was a youth in the Berkshires and the Midwest through his early inspirations to his serious classical and jazz study, and that gave him the foundation to be able to play anything. Now, the failure of his first rock band in his early 20s freed him up for an audition with John Mellencamp, and that changed his life. His work with Mellencamp catapulted him to the top of the charts with hits like Hurt So Good, Little Pink Houses, Jack and Diane, and set the scene for the remarkable career that he's had. Hiya, Kenny. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard right around the world. I love it. Thank you very much, man. I'm honored that you had me come on on such short notice. Well, the fans that don't know, I, I we just we just met not even a week ago. At yeah, Metro. that's right. And here we are. We best, love it. Best buds. <laughs> well, you know that's kind of the way my life is, man. It's carpe diem, man. You don't why wait to do something you can do today. I I agree entirely. Okay. Now, you've said that writing sex, drums, and rock and roll ranks as one of the most challenging experiences of your life. And I thought it was interesting that when you were with Mellencamp, he regularly maintained rehearsal hours from 11 a.m. till 11 p.m. with a five to seven break five days a week. Now, that's sort of really being disciplined. Now, you said you dedicated 14-hour days to the book. Did you get that? Discipline from Mellencamp, or have you always had that sort of discipline? No, my, no a, a lot of my discipline came from the, the five years of training I had in uh, classical music at university, and four of those years was at Indiana University, which was the number one music school in classical music in the country, right. the largest music school in the world, and my teacher there and uh, some other teachers you know, demanded nothing less but perfection. It's like, um, which I find there's a lack of, of that type of drive and, and intensity. Um, I mean, I don't see it as much as on students today. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but that was back then. That was just the, that was the only way that was the way. And they were there to, uh, if you didn't measure up, you were weeded out. And I, my DNA and my personality rose to that occasion. Right. I also was, you know, I was into, I was a three letterman jock all through high school. So I understood discipline from coaches demanding, you know, you know, 150%. The first time I learned discipline when I was in my junior year in high school and I was afraid of um, passing chemistry. And, and in my family, everybody went to college. So I knew there was no way out. I would be, I would be a disappointment. So, I was not, you know, going to school is about hanging out with chicks, uh, hanging out with my my athletic buddies and my music buddies, and then going home afterward. And after school, it was sports. And then it was a little bit of homework at home, and then it was rock and roll band rehearsal. Yeah. 
And, and I, the fourth ingredient was academics. And I finally got it together in that chemistry class. I realized I, I had to pass. And so I, at that moment, I, when I opened the book, I realized I'm not going to turn the page. This time, I'm not going to turn the page until I understand everything on that page. And long story short, I busted my ass. I got a lot of help from my teacher. I got an A in chemistry. Then the, I took got an A in physics and an A in uh, advanced math. And that set the tone for me to understand what discipline is. And right. discipline is discipline is just basically doing things you don't necessarily want to do, but it gets you the results you want. And once you've learned it once, you can apply it to anything. It's, you know, it, when you're suffering through this discipline, if you are, what gets me excited and motivated is where I'm going. That's yeah. where I keep my eyes, where I'm going. Yeah. Now, I was, I was in the rock and roll business through the 60s and the 70s, and I wrote a book a few years ago about those times. And, you know, you really have to live them to believe them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, my big problem was trying to remember when I sat back 40 years later or whatever, and I'm sitting there trying to remember what the hell happened and when right. did it happen, what did I dream up and what did I imagine and what was Thank real. How did you remember what happened to come up with a draft of a 600-page book initially? Well, that's a good question. Um, I kept calendars or, you know, day runners for every year from 1977 until present, mostly so I would know which session, which gig, where I had to be if I got paid. You know, I would check mark if I got paid, you know, of course. I understand. And the, the miracle was I, I didn't throw them away. And then the other miracle was I found them. And that's when, because the writer that I was writing with first was, um, he came up with the great questions, but I just felt like they were, we had to have some sort of organization. And that's when I went, started looking for them, found them, and then I, I was I was set free. There was a couple years that I, I think I was missing them. So I had to go. I did other things. I went on my my website and saw the records I had done, the live tours, and filled in the blanks. Believe it or not, some of the challenges were the social life because, you know, my career has always been number one. That has been my mistress, and I have always put that ahead of everything. So I had to try to, I mean, I never wanted to write this book. It was I was convinced to write it. And the reason why I didn't want to write it because I knew it was going to be a pain in the ass, and that it and I knew that I was going to have to take charge of it at some point. Right. But I got talked into it because it, they made it sound like, well, the writer said, "Man, you just dictate this stuff to me," and he made it sound like he turned it into an Oscar, you know, and <laughs> yeah. it worked that way. But that's what I learned a lot about. I learned a lot about myself because I don't look back that much I only look forward because what's the point looking back absolutely I agree but now that I have looked back that's what made me reevaluate my life and go like well how did I do this why can't he earn all that's where I came up with the seven keys to a successful life and career because those were the seven things that made me successful I had to I wanted to organize like why how I would not have done that at this point in my life if I hadn't written the book. So the book became a lesson for me and now I'm writing the next book which is based on those seven, you know, keys. Yeah. Yeah. How long did it take you to write the book? It was a four-year process and when you mentioned those 14, 16-hour days, those were on my days off 
on tour with John Fogarty. And, um, you know, I mean, I had a deadline. I was six months late. I tried to buy the book back to bury it. They convinced me not to. They said the editor will fix it. And he did. And the reason why I spent so much time writing it was because it wasn't in my voice enough. I felt like it was someone else's voice. So I, I basically went over every single page over and over and over and over again. And when I felt like it wasn't in my voice, I rewrote it. Rewrote everything. Yeah. So. so the second problem that I had when I wrote my book was waiting till my son was in his twenties and my mother passed. Um, oh. You know, wives are yet another issue. Oh yeah. <laughs> how, how did you? You know, I'm sure you've had one hell of a life out there. How did you decide what to include in the book and what to leave out? Well, Bob, <laughs> you're nailing it. I mean, the challenges were my two divorces the two relationships I had with women that, you know, we're all good friends right now. And the challenge was how to deal with that. And then in the consider the present, uh, relationship, my wife, Georgina, and, um, those, those two things were a big challenge. And of course the Mellencamp divorce, I call that a divorce too. And what I decided was at first I wrote kind of everything, some pretty wild stories. I was, you know, I was the guy that lived for the moment you know, I, I mean, I was not the most honorable guy in my marriages. You know, we were young. The audience was young. Girls were throwing their underwear at us. And we weren't Motley Crue, but we were close. <laughs> and um, we were just being guys, you know. Um, and we were all too young to be married. You know, we shouldn't have been married during that time. And uh, so what I ended up doing was I was that was the biggest challenge, trying to figure out how am I going to do this? where I'm honest, but respectful. And so what I did was I left out, and I did the same, by the way, with partying. You know, I didn't <laughs> have to list every single substance, you know, and, and and so I decided that I would not, I didn't have that many scenes in the book, uh, were, were very detailed scenes of wildness. I implied that it was happening enough so you knew it was happening. Yes, stuff yeah. went on, but I didn't need to list it. it what, this wasn't supposed to be that kind of book. I love the title, Sex, Drums, Rock and Roll, but the book isn't primarily about sex, even though sex is the first word. And I clarified that right at the beginning. Yeah. If you're looking for the the, um, the book where the drummer has sex with 4,000 women, this isn't the book. But I did say it. <laughs> if you're looking for the book, Only 4,000. Jesus, I thought you were a good player. Well, God, you're a big disappointment. I know. (laughs) Horrible, horrible. uh, You know, my mom said, I had to warn my 90-year-old mom. I said, listen, mom, there's a scene with me with two lesbian girls. They picked me up. And she goes, why did you have to say such a thing in your book? I can't believe you did that. I said, mom, (laughs) you should see the stuff I left out. (laughs) This is like the, this was the, the compromise, you know. <laughs> and I felt I felt that if I didn't have some of that in there, yeah, who know me and know that whole sure. scene wouldn't take me li- seriously. So I tried to be classy about it, you know, and and still be honest. And you don't have to tell every detail. That's not my yeah. that was my point of the book. Yeah. Well, being with a couple of lesbian, that that's pretty classy. Um, <laughs> I thought they were real classy. <laughs> now, to be successful as an entrepreneur or in the music business, it's bloody hard. 
And, you know, yeah. both have really high failure rates. Of all the people who started off in the rock and roll business, very few of them make it through to the end of the tunnel. And the failure rate in business, particularly with entrepreneurs, is about 97%. It's wow. probably pretty close in the rock and roll business. Yeah. So what are the most important you know, if you're sitting out there now and you're a young entrepreneur and you're listening to this, what are the most important attributes that you need if you're going to be successful? Well, the the the, the, the three given, and I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know. First one is self-discipline. It all starts there. And as I explained, self-discipline is doing things that you don't necessarily want to do, but you get you hopefully will get the results that you want. Yeah, from self-discipline. Hard work fueled by passion and education. That's my second key. Hard work is like, that's a given, man. If you do nothing, you get nothing. It's like math. Zero equals zero. Yep. So you got to do something. You have to. And, and, and just anything. Make a phone call. Um, get on the computer. Do something every day. Forward motion. Hard work is like a vehicle through life. It's like my a car or a plane or or whatever you use to get somewhere. That's what hard work is. Yep. And then passion, fortunately for me, I found my passion at a very young age. I want to be a drummer. I want to be in a rock band. And, and then education, we have to keep learning. I mean, you have to keep learning because things change so fast. Okay, those two guys, yeah. Yeah. The third thing is, you create a plan that you execute to reach your goals. A lot of people have ideas, but they don't follow through. In all these three things, by the way, this isn't one year or five years or ten years. This is a lifetime. You know, a teacher, when I was at Indiana University, said to my mom, first day I got there, she was concerned, like any mom would be, says, you know, Mr. Gaber, that was my teacher, do you think Kenny's going to make it? Do you think he's talented enough? Uh, you know, uh, what do you think? She just looked at my mom and he went, Mrs. Aronoff, ask me that question in 10 years. I have no fucking clue. <laughs> and he didn't say the F word, but what he was saying was, it's up to Kenny. Yeah. It's not up to me. It's not up to you. I can't guarantee you anything. It's up to Kenny. And guess what? 10 years after that year, 1972, is 1982, I'm with Mellencamp and we won two Grammys and I had basically two number one hit singles, Jack and I and Hurts Are Good. My career as a rock star was launched. Oh I had made it, but that was just the beginning. Um, so those three things, self-discipline, hard work fueled by passion, education, and then you know creating a plan that you execute to reach your goals is is the foundation. Now, here comes the bigger thing here. Why Kenny Aronoff? There's a lot of great drummers. Like you said, the, the, the percentage rate of being successful is extraordinarily low and, and you know, not being successful is very high. And yeah. that doesn't mean you're not a great musician. There are some breaks I got with John Mellencamp, but I made my success. That guy fired me in LA after being in the band for five weeks where I was I didn't understand what the purpose of a drummer is with a singer songwriter or a band of this nature that is is to be played on the radio right. my vocabulary was limited in that area so when we got into the studio after only being in the band five weeks 
they kind of picked up on that. The producer wanted to get the record done. Back then, you built everything around the drums. Sure. Everything. So the feel, the sound. So, John, here's a crucial, crucial moment in my business career, as you want to put it. And I had no idea that I was this guy. You know that saying, fight or flight? Well, I'm fight or fight. <laughs> I'm Bill Belichick, like I said at Metal, the guy and the Patriots, the guy at 21 to 3 at halftime losing, is not looking at the score, but thinking, what can we do to win this game? So intuitively, when John was saying, you go home, I was going, nope, 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 nope. I screamed at him. I said, I'm not going home. And I scrambled to negotiate a deal that would be suitable for the both of us. And it, it was like, I was like, God, I didn't even know what I, it was just coming out of me. And I went, yeah. well, am I still your drummer? And he was perplexed and was looking at me like, what's he getting? And I went, am I still your drummer? And he goes, yeah. I said, well, well, I'm going to stay here. And um, yeah, I'm going to watch those drummers play my parts. And I'm going to learn from them and benefit. And you're going to benefit. <laughs> Because I'm your drummer and you don't have to pay me. That was the key word. You don't have to pay me and I'll sleep on the floor. And that's exactly what I did, except I did get a bed. The point is, if I'd gone home, who knows what would have happened. Yeah. The other point is, wow, that's an interesting character, characteristical trait about me. My character was to fight for what I passionately wanted. And there's always a way to negotiate something. Basically, I'm telling everybody out there, if you get fired, tell your boss you're not fired. No, just joking. <laughs> you can't fire me. You can't fire me. I'll work for free. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about um, having a plan. Now, in your business, as in most businesses, um, things change very quickly. How do you plan ahead when you don't know what the hell is going to happen tomorrow? Well, you have to have a, a you have to have a, a, an immediate plan for the present, but you have to have your eyes constantly watching like the trends, what's happening. Yeah. And it also a key factor is what resonates in you because you're always going to do what's passionate and desirable for you. You'll do that the best. So you got to be honest with yourself. Bullshit everybody else, but be honest with yourself. If you yeah. don't, if you're not honest with yourself. You may not make it because no, you, well, you got. Yeah, I mean that's the eleventh commandment. Don't bullshit yourself. Yep. you know what I mean. Be honest with yourself. Be just be. Admit to yourself what you are and what you're capable of. And um, so yeah, the the trends in music. Like I mean, look at. I mean, I've got all these gold records, and like you said, I could have thirteen hundred on my walls. If I bought them all from the records I played on. The thing is, that has already happened. That. It does. It's not bullshit, but it's not. What is happening now? They're not making records now, uh, or very few, or it's not a commodity like it used to be. It does. Yeah. Nobody buys them, you know. So that is like changed. I still have a studio because it's my brand. I'm going to record seven songs on two different artists on Saturday, Sunday. I'll be doing three different bands, four more songs. Monday, I'll be doing five songs from another band. That's a that's pretty big. Uh, Clump, that's a lot of work in recording in these days and yeah. that's in my studio I I heard once when the, the, the budgets were great a, 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 a project coordinator said hey Kenny if you happen to be in LA I wasn't living here yet 
uh, I have a project for you. I went, what do you mean? Wait, 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 wait. I said, what do you mean if I happen to live in LA? Are the session budgets changing? She said, yeah. I got an apartment the next month. So now I'm investing in me. Yeah. I didn't have to pay that $1,500 or get a rental car up until that point. But I was willing to do that to make sure I didn't lose you know, my market share as a session guy. Yeah. Eventually, I, I had to sell my house in Indiana, and I moved out here. Eventually, then I saw the budgets go down, down, down. I went, I can't not record. That's my brand, touring and recording. So I got a studio and invested about $100,000 in great equipment, and I've kept that going. And then I've gotten websites. You know, I've got a very, very expensive website now. and, and Good website. Thank you. And um, I'm, uh, and that took a year and a half, you know, of tweaking. It's still not done the way I want it. I got to do a few more things. But the point is, I made moves in the business. I don't, I didn't change the rules. The rules changed. I yeah. adapted to the rules. And, you know, my seventh step and key is staying focused and stay relevant. I mean, like a good example of somebody who didn't stay focused was Kodak Film. They got out of focus. Exactly. And they lost you know what I mean? I mean, and, you know, I mean, somebody else could be trying to do the same thing I'm doing. They're, I'm blessed with that. I had already made a name for myself. But, man, sometimes you could be looked at as, oh, he's the old guy. He's washed up. So you've got to be able to – there's so many factors involved. My number six key is a healthy life is a wealthy life. I mean, mental, physical, and emotional health is number one. If that goes, everything else goes. It's good, yeah. Right. So, you know, I'm blessed with good genes, but man, I work at it. I think about what I eat. I think about exercise. I think about, uh, I got an eight-step healthy life kind of guide. We don't have to get into it now, but there are things you do that you have to do to be, you know, I'm 64 in March, and, you know, people are asking me, at 20 years old, how do I keep my endurance going? I'm like, you're asking that at 20? So th- there's a lot of components. I know I've, uh, I've just, the answer to your question is very long, but no, it's I, good. people to get a feel of, th- it's not like you make it and that's it. As a matter of fact, this is a big problem with corporations now. I have a, a buddy of mine who's part of a team that goes into corporations Keep people doing what they did to get successful, to stay successful. There's a famous golfer who won seven, seven PGA tournaments in 10 months, seven. And he, they asked him, why, how do you do this? He said, because I'm still practicing six hours a day, seven days a week. The same thing that got me to win my first PGA tournament, I'm doing to continue to win PGA tournaments. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So. Which artists inspired you the most musically? Doesn't have to be somebody you've worked with, but who was your inspiration? Oh well, my story is this: I, you know, when I was a little kid, there was nothing to watch on TV. We had a black and white RCA with the rabbit ears and the tin foil on it. We got snow. Yeah, <laughs> no, well, we got one and a half channels. I never watched TV. So me and my brother and sister were out playing and my mom screamed at us one day to come into the family room. Of course, I thought I was in trouble. Yeah. Getting ready to get spanked or something. (laughs) And they're on the TV with the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. Right. That, I went, 
I had never seen anything or felt anything like that. And um, so I, I, I naively asked my mom to call the Beatles up and um, get get me in the band. <laughs> and um, how did that go for you? <laughs> the funny thing is you've worked with McCartney and, and with um, Ringo Starr, so you, you're well, sort of halfway there. Well, um, at that point, I didn't know that, so I, <laughs> and then I was mesmerized by uh, Ringo Starr and the drums because me being a hyper-energetic, athletic guy, I was just drawn to the, the energy of the drums, and I asked my mom for a drum set, and I got the same response which was zero. <laughs> and, then, um, and then I said, you know, I want to grow my hair like those guys. And I, I definitely want those girls chasing after me. And, you know, I love the whole thing. I was like, sign me up. So she didn't call the Beatles. I didn't get a drum set. But in two weeks, I started my own band. And I, I was working, uh, making enough money. I took a loan from my parents to get a snare drum and a cymbal. I stood up and played. The band was called the Alley Cats. And like you said, the, the the beautiful end of the story is 50 years later, I'm playing with McCartney and Ringo, the two remaining Beatles, honoring them for that same show, the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> and it was like, so I go, dreams do come true. Yeah. But so not by accident. Not by accident. I made it happen. Yeah. To be relevant. If it's to be, it's up to me. You know, huh? if it's to be, it's up to me. You can't, uh, you, know, you can't rely on anybody else. If it's uh, to be, it's up to me. Yeah. Which which artist that you've worked with has the most commitment to their craft? Somebody who's absolutely fanatically dedicated to what they do. Probably well, all of them, but who's, probably all of them. But who some of the ones out? that really, I mean, the ones I played with that really stand out. Bon Jovi, seriously, as a businessman and as a singer, he's a workaholic like me. He can't stop. John Fogarty, Creedence Clearwater, you know, the yeah. guy's from some of the greatest songs ever, ever written and recorded. Yeah, his uh, kids went to school with my son, so, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. So I've, I've met and spoken with John many times. Oh, okay, cool. And 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 Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins was right. an intense, focused, driven, obsessed uh, guy and all these people built like empires, you know. Sure. Um, you know, Mellencamp, same way. You know, I mean, Bob Seger. I mean, but they all, yeah. Yeah, they're, Stan, all, they're all committed. Springsteen, for sure. Yeah. Al John, for sure. What, um, you were telling us the other day about your frenetic schedule, and I couldn't remember where you started, but I know you ended up in Germany or somewhere over a period of three or four days. But what, how do you... Can you give us an example, and how the hell do you keep that up? All right. Well, here's the thing. There is no no in my vocabulary. I will fight to get everything done, which is is good, but it can be a little bit stupid because i got to prioritize sometimes the, the, the more important things. But the story you're talking about was it was only like, geez, a couple weeks ago, if not less, I did a gig with a band I played with on and off for 26 years called the Bodines yep. uh, in Las Vegas. I was supposed to fly to Mumbai that day, but I actually bumped the flight to Mumbai back just so I could do that one show in Vegas with the Bodines on on uh, February 8th. On February 9th, I flew Vegas to L.A., L.A. to Dubai, Dubai to Mumbai, landed at 2 a.m. on February 11th. 
I got to bed at 6. No, I got to bed at 8 in the morning, woke up at 10, rehearsed from 11 to 2, went back to my room. While everybody sight, was sightseeing, I decided, you know what? Don't push it, buddy. You you Because this was just the beginning of the trip. <laughs> so that next day, I had to get up at 6.30, 7.30 breakfast, 8.30 in the car, eight-hour rehearsal and sound check. Back to the hotel to pack, went and did the show, back in the hotel at 11.30 p.m., slammed a couple of drinks down with Billy Gibbons, got my clothes, and went to the airport, and I was on a plane at 4 a.m., uh, 50 hours later from landing uh, to Dubai, Dubai to Houston, and in Houston was a private jet waiting for me. Guy picks me up, brings me the jet, we get in the jet, and we fly to San Antonio. Two and a half hours later, I'm on stage with John Fogarty. <laughs> The San Antonio Rodeo. But it keeps going. The next morning, I wake up, and I'm on Don Henley's jet with the Fogarty Band, yep. flying to New York City. Thank God that was a night off. And I'm trying to catch up with all my business, constantly yep. always doing business in the morning at night. The next day, we had a show outside of New York. The next day, Connecticut. And the next day, I flew all the way across the United States back to L.A. And the next day, I met you. That was last Saturday. Where's Kenny Aronoff going to be in 10 years' time? Well, 10 years' time, I'll be speaking and writing books. I, that's where I see myself. It's interesting. I was approached to do a documentary and a TV show. We'll see if that happens. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying taking my life experience and... I guess one way of saying is I'm monetizing my life experience by speaking, writing. Um, I'm open to, it, it feels like I'm just going to the next level. Not, I'm not saying it's better. It's just at the next level. You take this experience, you have wisdom, and you also are ready to do something with that information and that facility. And one way so far what I've seen is the speaking thing, which is I have a show, it's a, a movie, and a, a, then a live performance that segues into me speaking, and then I interweave my message I want to deliver, and I'm constantly working on it, a benefit for my audience, that they can take away something that they re learn from me, if not reignite in them what they already know, because I say it in my way, and, uh, you know, give positive energy out, and get paid for it and move on to the next thing and maybe that'll lead to some more TV and some other stuff but there's no retirement in my uh, in my uh, schedule Kenny thanks very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard radio show now you can learn more about Kenny at Kenny Aronoff that's K-E-N-N-Y-A-R-O-N-O-F-F dot com and I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Channel. And we're the number one global business radio shows for entrepreneurs. And this week we're broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles in the heart of Silicon Beach. Now, we've seen what's happened with uh, robots in Amazon who've got over 30,000 of them and robots in banks and insurance companies in the grocery business. And now there's a hotel run almost entirely by robots and it's expanding internationally, hopefully to 100 hotels. The huge saving in labour cost keeps the hotel affordable and they plan to add 1,000 similar hotels in the future with robots making up over 90% of the total staff. Now, having robots in charge throughout the hotel makes it the most efficient hotel in the world. To check in, arriving guests can either talk with a humanoid robot who speaks Japanese or English, or you can speak to a dinosaur who speaks English. And to make sure that no one steals the prehistoric receptionist, or any other robot for that matter, they do have humans on staff as security and making beds. So the um, robots get all the good gigs <laughs> and the people get the rest. Now, apart from the life-size dinosaur in the lobby, there's a roving recycling bin, which is just a robot with a bin for guests to help keep the uh, hotel tidy. Now, the hotel staff is quite happy to wait patiently for guests to check in because they're robots. Floor robots, which are also becoming popular in hotel in the airports, um, will assist the weaker travellers. They'll carry guests' luggage to the rooms, and guests can leave their luggage in a cloakroom manned by a cloakroom robot who then stores the luggage. Each room comes stocked with Tully, a hotel concierge robot that can help you find nearby restaurants, recommend events, control room temperature, change channels on the TV, and answer any other questions you have. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And for just 80 bucks, the general public can spend a night with the dinosaurs and the robots. I love that. That'll be fun for five minutes. Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We now have about 1.7 million daily subscribers. It takes just 30 seconds to read, and every day we tackle a new subject. Um, subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, um, Ethereum, etc. And uh, so just go to bobpritchard.com. That's bobpritchard.com and register for the newsletter. You'll love it. And if you don't like it, just unsubscribe. Now, here's this for a great idea. Rent a dad. Now, I thought this was a great and very unique idea, but when I looked around, I found there were loads of them. So I was a bit disillusioned, but I still think it's cute. These services help if you don't have a date to a family reunion or any other occasions that might require a stand-in. They won't take any illegal requests. You can't sort of hire somebody to go and murder somebody or anything. Parents' stand-ins are the most expensive at $275 a person. To attend a wedding is $140 a person. And giving a speech is just 50 bucks. Now, that seems to me to be weird because giving a speech is hard. Now, about 20 to 30% of the jobs are for weddings 
The next big one is a stand-in for parents and introducing parents to a prospective spouse. <laughs> That's another 30 to 40%. So you bring along a stand-in um, to your parents. <laughs> God, what do they do when they actually find out? Now, many people have concerns for appearances and how they're seen by others. Sometimes it's just plain vanity that drives people. It's not always life or death. Some guy tells his um, parents he's got a girlfriend, then panics because he doesn't. Seems to me to be a really dumb thing to do because you're going to get caught, but it's a good way to make a dollar, I suppose. Initially, one guy set it up so he could play the father role for people raised by a single mum and stuff like that. Then people started asking for women, for younger people, for a man in their 60s, etc. So he began to hire people. And now the 100 plus people who work for him are amateurs. Thank you, paid. Everything happens over the internet, by email and by phone. The site gathers the basic information about their availability, skills and looks. If they get a request, for example, for five bridesmaids, if they're all drop-dead gorgeous, that would look pretty suspicious, so they mix it up. And sometimes I've even had to get together up to 40 people as a sort of stand-in audience at a wedding so that you look like you're, um, you're popular. What if they all have to bring a present? That wouldn't be a bad look. Have 40 people come along, stand-ins, and then we'll bring a present. Hmm. Um, now, the first service began when an acquaintance asked the entrepreneur to appear at a wedding. The groom needed someone to give a best man speech, and he'd never met the guy. The groom wrote the speech. It all went really well, so he added that service to his counselling offer. Usually, people who use these services have no one else to ask. They're the last resort. That is bloody tragic. I mean, the idea is cute, but how tragic when you've got to get somebody to stand in to this best man. You don't know one person that can be a best man at your wedding. God's truth. That's a bit rough. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up way too much space. Get out of the way and let someone who wants to be successful come in ahead of you because it's easier and it's much, much, much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. You know, it's a lot better to aim for the stars and miss than it is to aim for the gutter and succeed. And if you're always trying to be normal, you'll never know how amazing you can be if you're not normal. I don't like normal people. I love really weird people. That's why we've got so many friends, I guess, in the entertainment business. Weird people are great. Normal people are boring. So I hope you have a sensational week, and I hope you can join me again next Tuesday. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.